CJSW 90.9 FM Broadcasting in Calgary on Treaty 7 Territory at Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3 Thanks This is David Barsamian producer and host of Alternative Radio You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary Fascism thrives when it's contrasted with a conversion of capitalist liberal democracy, now often called neoliberalism. Fascism thrives when, as Hannah Arendt says, individuals are atomized and they don't have groups in which they can belong and identify. For fascism to succeed, it needs to destroy all competing senses of purpose. So all that's left is your ethnic identity, your national identity, your religious identity, whatever principle the fascist movement is going to take as the unifying force to give you value. That's Jason Stanley, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Jason Stanley on how fascism works. What is fascism? Michael Parenti, author and historian, says... Fascism historically has been used to secure the interests of large capitalist interests against the demands of popular democracy. Then and now, fascism has made irrational mass appeals in order to secure the rational ends of class domination, unquote. Fascism flourishes in times of economic insecurity and cultural backlash. Opportunistic politicians offer up a platter of racism, xenophobia, and hypernationalism. They stoke fear and resentment using simplistic slogans such as drain the swamp and build the wall. In the United States today, there is a whiff of fascism in the air. Witness the march of white supremacists with torches held high in Charlottesville chanting, blood and soil an old Nazi slogan, and Jews will not replace us. The president called them very fine people. Our guest today is Jason Stanley. He's professor of philosophy at Yale, and he's the author of many books, including How Fascism Works. He spoke at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada, in late September 2017. And now, Jason Stanley. Now, we've just witnessed in the country that gave rise to national socialism, a party, Alternative für Deutschland, an ultra-nationalist far-right party, come into the parliament. And not just come into the parliament, but they're now the third largest party in Germany. They campaigned on restoring German national pride, on restricting immigration, on raising fears about uh, Islam. And this should give us pause, because the social meaning of their victory is much more powerful than what has happened in a number of other countries. It's not their victory. I mean, they finished third. But they did much better than they were predicted to in the polls, um, almost double their predictions in the polls, which is characteristic of these movements. That, I think, is the latest epicycle in a rollback of liberal democracy that we've seen across the world. 
You can ask your parents about what 2004 and 2005 was like. They, uh, they will tell you that there were hopes for democracy. Democracy was uh, uh, spreading with the color revolutions in Eastern Europe. Uh, five, six years later, uh, the, uh, the Arab Spring. It seemed that liberal democracy was some kind of unstoppable force. That is, in hindsight, was a little optimistic. What we have now is we have uh, ultra-nationalist far-right movements that have come to power in Russia, Hungary, Poland, India, Turkey. Well, Iran, there are theocracies across the world that fit the structure that I'm going to argue fascism does. And now the United States. Historians always inveigh against generalizing about phenomena. Um, and philosophers typically ignore historians. I will use individual cases as examples to fit into a scheme. But I think something different is needed than what the historian does. What the historian does is she takes particular countries about which she has expertise or areas and tells us the story of what happened with fascist or ultranationalist movements in those countries and invites us to generalize and make analogies. I think that is not what the time calls for. The time calls for a scheme, a generalization, an abstraction, which we can then take to reach a social and political reality and see if our social and political reality matches that. And while it's going to result in missing out details, missing out salient and important differences between regions, it's nevertheless going to give us, I think, a rough sense. Because I think that there are these constellations of positions that come together as family resemblances. And you might find yourself agreeing with some elements of one position, and then suddenly you find yourself in a group that agrees with all of them. And I think that fascism is one such grouping. People will say, well, fascism is a movement that is so specific you know, it's Giovanni Gentile in Italy, a wacky idealist philosopher influenced by Hegel who comes up with a particularly intricate view. Well, that's not how I'm going to take fascism. That becomes a philosophical gloss on a certain structure. And it's that structure that I think it's vital for all of us to have in mind. Now, my interest here will be, for the most part, in the ultra-nationalist ideology that is the basis of fascist movements. The dangers in my mind from fascism come from this part of it. I mean, there are dangers that come also from the completely authoritarian leader part, where the leader is the voice of the people, as Trump has declared himself to be. I am your voice in his RNC acceptance speech. But if we just have the ultra-nationalist movement, that seals itself off from those who are not in the nation. That itself is responsible for much of the ills of fascism. Because that itself seals off our capacity for empathy. It justifies harshly inhumane treatment of our fellow human beings, from mass imprisonment or mass expulsions to, in extreme cases, mass extermination. The danger of fascism is present even if the mythic nation fails to be realized in a single powerful figure who is taken to be its personification.
So I'm going to take fascism to be this Weltanschauung, as the Germans called it, this ideology that is opposed to that of liberal democracy. Whether or not it takes the form of a nation with an authoritarian leader or a would-be authoritarian leader like Vladimir Putin of Russia or Erdogan of Turkey, both leaders well on their way to leading classic fascist configurations. Ultimately, they tilt towards the idea is that the genuine freedom is being told what to do by the leader. Hitler, as we'll talk about later, calls that genuine German democracy, is when the leader tells you what to do. And he gives a good argument for it, actually. It's a, he says, liberalism requires a sense of responsibility. But in a democracy, who's responsible? Nobody's responsible, because everyone votes. In, in under true German democracy, one person is responsible, the leader. So there's real liberal responsibility. I encourage us to think outside these left and right categories, because the left and right categories aren't super helpful. Because it's tempting to think that left and right can be used as opposite poles of measurement along some kind of linear political spectrum, with fascism on the right and communism on the left. This temptation should be resisted. The words left and right are highly contingent social constructs that lack the kind of conceptual coherence that this fiction suggests. To take one example, both the Soviet Union under Stalin and Cuba under Fidel Castro instituted harshly repressive measures against homosexuals. And yet anti-gay politics is a stereotypical feature of the contemporary political right and not the contemporary political left. Furthermore, though we think of the Soviet Union as communist, Stalin introduced a decidedly nationalistic element into Soviet politics, which is a mark of the right-wing structure. There are present-day examples of nationalist movements, on the other hand. So those are communist movements with what we think of from our perspective as right-wing elements. There are present-day examples of nationalist movements with a modicum of stereotypically leftist elements, a vision of a social welfare state, say, but restricted to Europeans, an exclusionary of our Muslim fellow citizens, our Middle Eastern immigrants. Though typically, it must be said, this is a model of a social welfare system that's meant to encourage motherhood and encourage women to stay at home. Um, the patriarchal family being an essential part of fascist ideology. Nevertheless, social welfare systems would be considered to be characteristic elements of the political left from our perspective. Criticisms of elites arise from both the left and the right. So you find both Bernie Sanders supporters in the 2016 election and Donald Trump supporters harshly criticizing the elites. So there are libertarians who strongly oppose any kind of redistribution of resources and from this perspective seem to be on the right. And yet who equally strongly reject the kind of law and order politics that comes with fascist movements as well as the militarism characteristic of fascism. So the simplistic fiction of the linear political spectrum with fascism on the right and communism on the left simply fails to do justice to the complexity of social and political reality. The words left and right allow considerable mixing and matching of positions. I discovered this once in a debate in the Yale Political Union, a wonderful institution with there's the party of the right, the conservatives, the party of the left, the liberals. And, uh, and I found that when I would quote Noam Chomsky and say it was Noam Chomsky, 
the party of the left would cheer and the party of the right and the conservatives would boo. But if I would just quote Noam Chomsky without saying it was Noam Chomsky, the party of the right would cheer and the party of the left would boo. So right and left are positions that are highly contingent social constructions. These caveats aside, fascism is a position considerably harder, if not impossible, to reach from configurations we would now think of as on the left. A strong rejection of female equality is an essential feature of fascism. I would say an essential feature of fascism. But a denial of full gender equality is flatly inconsistent with contemporary understandings of leftist politics. More generally, fascism is the denial of equality. Fascism denies equality as a myth. And yet some version of equality is a goal that unifies otherwise very different leftist movements. Furthermore, if we look at the world today, fascism is a position that's emerging exclusively from elements of what are now considered the political right. For example, in Poland, France, Turkey, Germany, and the United States. Many of the classic books about fascism, most notably Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, do not theorize about fascism in isolation. They're rather attempts to give an account of totalitarianism, with both certain versions of communism, like Stalinism, and national socialism, and European fascist movements, theorized as different species of totalitarianism. This is the open versus the closed society motif. And to be clear, extreme repression, mass expulsion, and imprisonment, and mass extermination have been justified by fascist and communist regimes alike. Though by no means all fascist states, and by no means all communist states, have gone to those extremes. Nevertheless, especially right now, I think it is an error to discuss these movements together under one umbrella. My first reason is a practical reason. When you discuss these movements together, you're suggesting that communism is right now a serious threat in the countries that face threats from fascist movements. For example, Hungary, Poland, the United States, and Russia. Fascism thrives only when there is a sense, often manufactured, of the threat of communist takeover. As Joseph Goebbels, who is to become Nazi propaganda minister, writes when ruminating about how to encourage national socialist sentiment, the middle class sees in Bolshevism not so much the subverter of national will and folkish instinct, but mainly the thief of its property, the uncomfortable disturber of peace and quiet. It also sees our national socialist will for freedom from this point of view. We are its last consolation and last hope if Bolshevism is around the corner. The less Bolshevism threatens, the less the ordinary burger cares about us, the more serenely he smiles at our desperate struggle. Overhyped and exaggerated fears of encroaching communism were essential to the success of the national socialists in Germany in the late 1920s and 1930s. In his classic study of the fall of the ordinary German town of Thalberg to the National Socialist Party, called The Nazi Seizure of Power, The Experience of a Single German Town, 1930 to 1935, historian William Sheridan Allen writes, to most Thalbergers, the NSDAP was first and foremost an anti-Marxist party. When a Thalberger thought of Marxism, he was not likely to think of the communists, who in 1928 had received only 28 of the 5,372 votes in the town. 
So the communists were no threat at all in Thalberg. The quote-unquote Marxist party in Thalberg was the Social Democratic Party. In other words, you know, the Liberal Party, like the Democrats in the United States. The SPD, the Socialists. The Socialists were the dominant political force in Thalberg. In the 1928 elections, they received almost 45% of the town's votes, more than the next three largest parties combined. It's by representing ordinary center-left politics as threatening communism that fascists come to power. And that is textbook. When I talk about communism, when we're talking about Pol Pot, when we're talking about Stalin, we're talking about murderous movements that slaughtered people. These are not fears here, but is it the case that historically communist regimes in the true sense of communist have used fascism as an enemy? Sure, and certainly in Germany as well, where there, were, there was a communist movement that rose alongside. What we're seeing is a repeat of history. When you have one kind of extremist politics, you have the other. I certainly wouldn't paint the Antifa movement as the Antifa movement. This is normal, what we're seeing. In the 1920s, in, the, in Thalberg, when the ultranationalists tried to do a play about German folk identity, the students from the university came and tried to shut the play down. This is not new, what we're seeing. This is a repetition of history. How does history regard those students? History doesn't condemn those students. In Thalberg, there were battles with bricks on the streets between the ultranationalists and the students who were trying to shut the ultranationalists down. You know, should the students have not tried to shut the ultranationalists down? I don't know. Those are difficult questions about strategy. But the fact is, when ultranationalist movements are out there, there are fights. And that's true today. It's always been true. Victor Klemper, in the language of the Third Reich, talks about a nurse who says, you can always tell the communists from the fascists apart in the hospital ward. The fascists have lumps on their head and the communists have stilettos in their hearts. One reason not to fight fascists is they're going to win. <laughs> they have more guns. <laughs> and the anti-fascist movement is not in a position, if there's some kind of authoritarian takeover, to fight it. So the only way is to win the middle. But there are strategic questions when you fight ultranationalism. I mean, we really have to distinguish liberalism, so I'm going to defend something called liberalism. There are plenty of right-wing people who are liberals. When you look at American politics, the Republican Party is much further to the right than any of your parties. Stephen Harper still would have been a Democrat. Now, it's true that in the universities, gender equality, there are movements for equality, there's a liberal commitment to equality. And when you start to tar universities, that commitment as a liberal communist commitment, then we get into worrisome historical and theoretical trend. In Poland, the takeover of the government by the theocratic fascist law and justice party exploited the strategy of fanning fear of non-existent communists. Poland has suffered so much from communism that you're not going to find communists in Poland. And yet you still find these conspiracy theorists about communists that motivated the takeover of the country in 2015 by law and justice from a party that had been expanding the GDP of, of Poland dramatically. And in recent U.S. politics, we see clear echoes of this. President Obama was regularly called a socialist, a Marxist, a communist. How many communists give trillions to banks? And most recently, we find university professors tarred as cultural Marxists, departments of women's studies, critical race studies, 
we're told about the dangers of cultural Marxism. And it's that moment, that attempt to spur fear of communism, that spurs fascist movements. If I were to discuss fascism and communism together, it would suggest that communism is a significant risk in countries like the United States. And it is not. So that first reason is practical. My second reason is theoretical. The ideologies of fascism and communism are very distinct. The most obvious is that communism, like liberal democracy, has equality as an ideal. For the fascist, in contrast, equality is a counter-ideal. Equality is what you are arguing against. Equality is a myth. It's the enemy. You know, the, the Marxists try to tell us we're equal when we're not. Communist propaganda praises equality. Fascist propaganda attacks it, as we will see, as inconsistent with nature. To take a less obvious example, fascism theorizes a mythic past, one in which the nation state was ethnically or religiously pure. There was no degeneracy, women played traditional gender roles, etc. In contrast, communism has at its center a mythic future, a worker's paradise where equality has been realized. These are very different structural configurations. You don't find medieval studies and runology thriving in communist regimes. The difference in the ideologies of fascism and communism shapes the way in which they, they can be used to justify oppression. Communism, characteristically, when it's used to oppress, as in Cambodia, is used to send people to re-education camps or labor camps to learn to be equalized. And with a goal of a mythic utopian future in which equality is, uh, is realized to use their brutality against dissident intellectuals and other members of the supposed elite. Fascist regimes justify oppressive practices by dehumanizing or otherwise devaluing some targeted group as a threat to the purity, cultural or ethnic, of the true nation that supposedly existed in the mythic past. The result can be the same, but the justifications are importantly different. And you have to know what kind of justification you're encountering. I'm not using fascism as a word that means there's no justification. <laughs> I'm using it as a description of the politics you described. But, you know, there are many fascist movements that did not come with mass extermination. National socialism is an extreme version, but fascist movements like Italy was hearkening back to Rome. Italy was... So when you're talking about fascist movements, there are many countries, Poland today, Hungary. These are not countries that have engaged in genocide. So I am talking about those movements. But what I am going to say is that when you talk about going back to a past, that that past never existed. I mean, Germany? <laughs> you know, Ro Mussolini talked about Rome. Rome was filled with immigrants. And, you know, I mean, the, there's these contradictions in the mythic, so that's, what I'm, that's the notion of a mythic past. So you elegantly and ably describe the self-image of these movements. Though I think when you look at Goebbels and Hitler and what they say, they actually don't think that what, they're, they're sort of driven by a sort of vision. I mean, it's complex uh, in the case of Hitler. I mean, he saw this sort of grand, you know, what economic... It wasn't economic revival, it was economic domination and imperialism. And My focus is on 
what I think is the greater threat for the countries we live in, which are the ultranationalist movements on the political right that I'm calling fascism. I have ruined many a dinner party by arguing about who is worse, Hitler or Stalin. And as your elder, I can inform you, this is not a route to take. They both were really bad. It must be said that Stalin was a nationalist. This is the Stalin-Trotsky debate who rejected the importation of the revolution because it was a national movement. So there's elements of fascism in Stalin. There are times and places in which communist authoritarianism should be of concern. And in the United States, in many countries, communist authoritarianism has never been a significant concern. Rather, communist is a label used to demonize those arguing for equality. Even religious leaders such as the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. were called communists. The word communist is used in the United States to tar movements seeking equality. Why give lectures describing the structure of fascism? Why is it important for us to know how this structure works? First, politics involves what we might think of as a marriage of convenience problem. One's commitment to a specific issue might lead one to join with others in a marriage of convenience. Maybe they're white nationalists. Maybe you're into Christian nationalism. So these marriages of convenience can land people in alliances. And what ends up happening is you end up in an essentially fascist structure. Without an understanding of fascism, one might not be aware when one is aiding and abetting fascist movements in such partnerships. I suppose one of history's classic examples is when corporatists, when those who own factories, oligarchs in Russia, for example, or corporations in Portugal and in Germany, aided the fascist movements because they had the joint goal of smashing labor unions, only to find out later that maybe this wasn't going to result in allowing their gay friends to live normal lives. Fear of fascism is often used to justify accommodating ever more anti-democratic measures. Let's placate the fascists, so let's have harsher immigration policies. But we have to know, we have to know when that's happening. Even sliding part of the way towards fascism is something to be avoided. But to avoid it, one must know what we are sliding towards. Thirdly, and most importantly, without a clear understanding of fascism, we will not be aware of indicators of susceptibility in our own political environment. The United States has always had fascist elements in its politics. And these fascist elements deeply influenced Adolf Hitler. At the heart of fascism is the notion of what Hitler calls in Mein Kampf the national state. In describing the restrictive immigration policies adopted by this country, by the United States, not this country, <laughs> in the early 1920s, Hitler in Mein Kampf writes, I know this is unwelcome to hear, but anything crazier and less thought out than our present laws of state citizenship is hardly possible to conceive. But there is at least one state in which feeble attempts to achieve a better arrangement are apparent. I, of course, do not mean our pattern German Republic, but the United States of America, where they are trying, partially at any rate, to include common sense in their councils. They refuse to allow immigration of elements which are bad from the health point of view and absolutely forbid naturalization of certain defined races, and thus are making a modest direction in the direction of something not unlike the conception of the national state. That's from Mein Kampf. 
And there are many more passages in which Hitler praises the United States' incredibly restrictive ethnically-based immigration policies uh, from 1924 on. The current president of the United States, Donald Trump, rode to electoral victory with a campaign of frank and open nostalgia about these very immigration policies. And this is but one of the elements of fascism that laces through present-day U.S. politics. Many of you are familiar with German pastor Martin Niemöller's speech, First They Came, given as a critique of German cowardice before Nazi purges. However, insufficient attention is given to the targeted categories it mentions. And the targeted categories help you think about fascism. In the most well-known version of the speech, it is, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. National socialism is a particular version of fascism that places Jews at the center of a conspiratorial web to advance equality in the service of destroying the traditional nation. But fascism does not require Jews to play this role. It only requires somebody to play this role. Socialists will do, Muslims will do, non-whites will do. However, fascism of any variety harshly targets trade unionists, that is, members of labor unions. In the opening pages of Mein Kampf, Hitler writes, the free trades union lowered over the political horizon and over each man's life like a threatening storm cloud. It was one of the most terrible instruments of intimidation against security and national independence, the solidity of the state and individual freedom. It was, above all, that which turned the idea of democracy into a repellent and derisory phrase, brought shame to liberty, and mocked at brotherhoods in the words, if you won't join us, we will crack your skull. You're listening to Jason Stanley on How Fascism Works. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get CDs, MP3s, PDFs of this program, and Jason Stanley's book on fascism. Our website is alternativeradio.org. Now, the relationship between fascism and work is complex. Think for a moment about the inscriptions and the gates of Auschwitz or Buchenwald. Arbeit macht frei. Work makes you free. The fascist sees in the manual laborer an image of the nation especially in domains such as mining and manufacturing. The hardy, masculine domain of work is crucial for fascist symbology and mythology, as it were. In the miner, in the manufacturer, in the, in the physical manual laborer, the fascist finds a powerful symbol of masculinity. So if you look at Leni Riefenstahl's Triumph des Willens, it's the masculine figure of Aryan power that you see. The worker represents that, the German. Whereas for communism, the worker is an international thing. There's no, like the worker is a woman. It's, the worker is not masculinized. You, can have, you have different, you know, you have, work, you have men and women workers doing the same jobs because it's an international movement for equality. For national socialism, you have women doing one thing, men doing another. 
You have them taking their natural orders. Women were, of course, driven out of the workplace. 1935, all women doctors were fired. The male worker is a worker who, uh, who sort of plays a certain role. Uh, fascism, as we'll see, involves this hierarchy uh, and sort of slots for everybody in the natural order. And so the worker represents those different slots. In communist iconography, you find different people of different colors and genders all doing the same job. And that's not something you necessarily find in, you would find in fascist configurations. When Hitler denounces the German trade union movement as a tool used for socialist takeover, he is correctly identifying a powerful source of resistance to fascism. Fascism thrives when it's contrasted with a version of capitalist liberal democracy, now often called neoliberalism. Fascism thrives when, as Hannah Arendt says, individuals are atomized, and they don't have groups in which they can belong and identify. If capitalist liberal democracy is just individual agents, each seeking their way in the global economy, then how is that any vision of value? If what the alternative to a fascist movement is, is each of us just sinking or swimming, well, that's not a very attractive vision of life. That vision of life is invariably going to lose against a movement that promises value and meaning in the form of collective identity. Labor unions, however flawed, have always been sources where people can get together in a community. They can form a community around joint goals of lobbying against their boss. But that creates community. It creates value. It creates a joint sense of purpose. My six-year-old son tried to organize a labor union in his class. His teacher was like, oh, it's great. We can put them to work now. And why not? It's like... It's a movement. It's exciting. You get together. You join together with your friends. You have meetings at night where you can organize. It gives you a sense of purpose. For fascism to succeed, it needs to destroy all competing senses of purpose. So all that's left is your ethnic identity, your national identity, your religious identity, whatever principle the fascist movement is going to take as the unifying force to give you value. And then you can reshape and refigure labor unions as movements meant for the glory of the nation. But labor unions in and of themselves, as anyone who's been involved in organizing knows, are enormous sources of resistance. They're enormous sources of community. They're enormous sources of value and purpose. Value and purpose in the service of material goals, making your life better. The weekend. Who doesn't like the weekend? At its healthiest, liberal democratic politics are people meeting at night, gathering and fomenting plans to get more time off. Trade unions, labor unions at their best protect us from insecurity. And insecurity breeds fear. And fear is the best friend of the fascist. Isolation and fear are the fascist's closest allies. So this is why the trade unions are on Pastor Niemöller's list. When you smash labor unions, when you set people into the global market where there's no one to protect them and there's no rules to protect them, then the immigrant laborer becomes a threat, right? 
because, oh no, there are no restrictions, we're just, it's sink or swim, anyone coming into the country is competing for my job. I have no protections. So fascist politics works by smashing labor unions and then leaving the people atomized and then unifying them under the nation, be it a religious nation, be it an ethnic nation, be it a cultural nation. Now, if you look at the United States today, where I come from, a harsh anti-union ideology has dominated U.S. politics for quite some time. Scott Walker came to power in the U.S. state of Wisconsin by promising to smash the power of labor unions in that state. And that traditionally democratic state that always voted for democratic presidential candidates for decades went for Donald Trump in 2016. Michigan, another labor state, also went for Trump. The sources of value have been broken down in the United States. The alternative ways to get value other than ethnic, cultural, or religious identity. And that feeds into the fascist notion of a nation. In the United States today, only a small percentage of workers belong to labor unions. I believe it's only 11%. Without labor unions, we are, as problematic as they can be in practice, each of us is an isolated, insecure atom. There's no cooperation, there's no meetings, there's no organizing against the boss. Furthermore, without labor unions, as Elizabeth Anderson has recently brilliantly demonstrated in her book on private government, we get used to a model of the world. We get used to living in a world, a corporation, that is very much like a fascist autocracy. If we don't have a labor union by which we can bargain with the CEO, with the bosses, then each of us simply has to do what we're told. That trains us, as it were, for fascist government. Another element of contemporary politics with strong fascist resonance is the highly salient attacks on the liberal media, which has transformed into denunciations of its supposed fakery and lying. The emergence of this kind of attack on these institutions must also be considered a historical marker of vulnerability in our societies. Here's a quote. For imperfectly educated, superficial readers, the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung is the essence of respectability. It never uses rough expressions, deprecates brute force, and always writes in favor of fighting with intellectual weapons. And this appeals, curiously enough, to the least intellectual people. But it is just for our semi-intellectual classes that the Jew writes in his so-called intelligentsia press. The tone of the Frankfurter Zeitung and the Berliner Tageblatt is intended to appeal to them. And it is they who are influenced by these papers. While they most carefully avoid all coarseness of language, they use other vessels for pouring the poison into the hearts of their readers. In a medley of charming expressions, they lull their readers into believing that pure knowledge and moral truth are the driving force of their actions, whereas really it is a cunning contrivance for stealing a weapon which their opponents might use against the press. If one replaced the anti-Semitism in this passage by references to the liberal or the cosmopolitan, and the name of prominent German newspapers with the New York Times and CNN. This passage from Mein Kampf would not raise a single eyebrow if it occurred in a speech by any number of contemporary U.S. politicians on the right. 
When we hear in our politics cries for men of action, not words, when we hear our politicians saying, he's not ready, he's not just simply a talker, he's going to go and do things and make things happen, this contrast between action and intellect, this is a classically fascist contrast. The intellectual is the enemy. The man of action will come and rescue us from, from the intellectual, from all the talking. The man of action will come and do. This is classically fascist. And there are strong echoes of this in the politics of many of our countries. You, you find people saying, I, I want someone who will come and like bash some heads and not just sit around talking and compromising. Why are they attacking the universities? Think about that. Where can you actually talk like we're talking? You can't in a business. In a business, you can be fired for voting the wrong way and putting a bumper sticker on your car. So where can you actually have debates between people with different views? University. So what do you do? You attack the university for being against free speech. Jeff Sessions just gave a talk at Georgetown University saying universities should be places of free speech. What has happened? Jeff Sessions is no friend of free speech. So what is going on? Something else is going on. And I encourage us not to be distracted on either side of where you take this strategic question. It is standard fare in authoritarian countries to start packing the universities with nationalists, which is what they're asking in the United States. Like, how about we have some people in the universities who stand up for traditional values, et cetera, forget their credentialing inside a discipline. I spoke at a southern university once in the past couple of years. I will not say which. And I quoted Du Bois, who was uh, presupposing in the quote I gave that the Civil War was about slavery. And I looked up, and a row of white students were recording me with their phones. And I said, you know I can't be fired for saying the Civil War is about slavery at Yale. What's happening inside universities is more complex. And as you know, being a student, there are plenty of non-liberal students. I believe in gravity. What if you came to me and said, prove you believe in gravity, jump off the roof? That seems to me dumb. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so if somebody's like, prove to me you believe in freedom of speech, get somebody who like demeans, who hates uh, the, the liberal democracy, because liberalism, get someone who threatens people as a speaker to prove your commitment. That seems to me just a completely ridiculous way to judge people's commitments. It's not like liberal democracy is an easy road. What you're talking about has been since Play Book 8 of Plato's Republic, the objection to democracy. But Book 8 of Plato's Republic, he says that system leads straightforwardly to tyranny. Basically, his point is because it allows for freedom of speech. <laughs> because if you have freedom of speech, then a demagogue can come, sow fear and resentment, set the people against each other, and seize power. Rousseau faces this straight on in the social contract. And Rousseau says, because you have to remember, people bought Plato's argument, essentially. There were just monarchies. People regarded liberal democracy as ridiculous for centuries and centuries and centuries. Rousseau says, they say this system is absurd. They say a magician with words from Paris or London could bewitch the masses. But they have only considered ill-formed states. And what Rousseau means by that is states in which people are set against each other. 
states in which different groups hate each other and are filled with resentment. So if you live in a state like that, liberal democracy is hard. But if you live in a state of wondrous equality, then you can do it. If somebody's going to impose a way of life on me, you know, well, I'm a liberal Democrat. So if people are calling for some kind of thing that's going to constrain my freedom, that's problematic. Now, here's the paradox of democracy that Plato recognized so long ago. Liberal democracy seems to allow people who want to impose their way of life on you to argue for it. <laughs> because that's freedom of speech. And Plato's like, that ain't going to work. <laughs> that's always been a central issue in liberal de democracy. So how do we deal with people who are like, no, I'm not just saying from my perspective your way of life is wrong. I'm going to argue that we should outlaw your way of life. Another aspect, US right-wing politics has been dominated by the topics of abortion and homosexuality and recently transgender rights. All of these are regarded as deformations of the traditional family by certain political parties. The traditional family also has a privileged place in fascist ideology. For the National Socialists, the traditional family is part of the natural order that was threatened by abortion and homosexuality. The Nazi government was obsessed by these issues. In 1936, Heinrich Himmler ordered the creation of the Reich Central Office for the Combating of Homosexuality and Abortion, a powerful office tasked with collecting records on gay Germans in order ultimately to imprison them in concentration camps. Within the academy in the United States today, at least, and oh, oh, Jordan Peterson in Canada too, there is a small but influential group of academics calling for serious research into racial and gender differences in cognitive ability. This is nothing other than a call for a continuation of the unbroken American tradition of university research that seeks to provide a naturalistic grounding for American racial and gender hierarchies. In the case of black Americans, it is a call to allow for continued research into scientific excuses for the brutal treatment and exclusion of Americans of African descent. Though the pseudoscience of genetic racial difference has always been a permanent feature of the US academic scene, the recent upsurge in denunciations of equality made by academics were like, objectivity requires us to consider everything. So therefore, we have to continue research into these topics that have yielded no fruit but exploitation. This resembles the core Nazi ideological doctrine that the liberal ideal of equality is inconsistent with natural law. And if you look at some of Jordan Peterson's lectures, it's what he says. He says, equality, it's a myth. Now, each of these elements of fascist ideology can receive a justification independently of the others. I've given you many different elements here, right? And each of them, you can imagine someone being, I hate labor unions, but people are equal. You could imagine someone saying, people aren't equal but labor unions are a cool way to like deal with certain problems that come from what I see as inequality. But when we see these same elements, all of these elements grouped together, when we see the very same people denouncing politicians who do nothing but talk, 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 attacking immigration as threatening the purity of the country, foaming at the mouth of the threat of socialism, raising outrage over threats to the traditional family,
denouncing homosexuals as degenerates, attacking the universities as bastions of liberalism and cultural Marxism, and seeking to cripple traditional labor unions. History strongly suggests that we are encountering a common and indeed familiar ideological structure. Many of us are not familiar with this ideological structure. We see the parts, but the parts together are what I urge us to attend to. Each of the parts may be problematic on its own terms, but when you put them together, there should be a warning sign. My hope is to explain this structure, to analyze the parts, to get you to see how they fit together, how fascist politics involves each one of them playing off the other. More directly and more personally, I want to eliminate the excuse of ignorance. We must leave a record for future generations if we fall, if liberal democracy falls. Liberal democracy has always been a fragile flower. I was on FaceTime with my kids when I arrived in Canada going, I'm in the land of, land of freedom now. But there's never been a, an epoch in human history where the majority of people have lived under liberal democracy. And yet, when you live in a stable liberal democracy, you think its freedoms and its ideals are somehow human ideals. That is not true. Fascism denounces equality as a bad thing. So we need to leave a record, because if our children and grandchildren, if they get to exist, they need to know that we knowingly pursued this path, if we do. But I would be ungenerous and negligent if I did not acknowledge that millions of people living in my country and yours and other countries around the world, confronted with the synergisms that drive fascism, are aware of and chilled by much that chills me as well. I hope the clarity I seek to bring to the analysis of how fascism actually works advances understanding of our fraught times, offers solace, and at best helps inform individual and collective action and individual moral choices. The right of every person to human dignity was affirmed in 1948 in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It was a bald statement, a powerful iteration and expansion of liberal democratic understanding of personhood to include literally the entire world community. It bound all nations and cultures to a shared commitment to valuing the dignity and equality of every person and rang with the aspirations of millions in a shattered world confronting the devastation of colonialism, genocide, racism, global war, and yes, fascism. Nonetheless, Article 14 soberly affirmed the right of every person to seek asylum. The right of asylum acknowledged that categories of human beings may once again have to flee the nation states under whose flag they once lived. Refugees are on the road everywhere. Their plight reinforces fascist propaganda that the nation is under siege and that aliens are a threat and danger both within and outside our borders. The suffering of strangers can solidify the structure of fascism but it can also trigger empathy once another lens is clicked firmly into place. Recognizing the critical historical moment we are navigating, another version of the legacy we might leave is that there is sufficient courage and humility to recognize the humanity of all. It's hard for me to do. It's hard for all of us, but it must be done. Thank you.
That was Jason Stanley on How Fascism Works. He spoke at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada in late September 2017. Jason Stanley is professor of philosophy at Yale. He's the author of the book How Fascism Works, which The Guardian says is a vital read for a nation under Trump. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Jason Stanley on How Fascism Works, and for his book on fascism, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. In solidarity with you, our listeners, we're offering free of charge MP3s, PDFs, and printed transcripts of today's program. Just call us at that toll-free number, 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Clampdown by The Clash from their album London Calling.
Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Hello. Hello. What is it? CJSW. This is Crispin Glover. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you.